Good evening, everyone. Praise the Lord, we get to do this. Study the Word. It doesn't get any better than that. If you have your Bibles, and I pray you do so, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in, in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, and today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest for after, forever, for after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. And though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obeyed him. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Twice he mentioned him. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. The reason, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is skillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses ex uh, exercised to discern both good and evil. Would you stand with me just one more time? Let's pray over the word. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, Lord, um, in the middle of the week, after a day of work or our busyness, Lord, we're in need of your help that we would be able just to set aside all the cares and concerns that we might have brought along with us just for a, such a time as this, that we would be able to hear and sense, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, what you're trying to convey to us, what you're trying to do, even well, maybe individually, but maybe also collectively as a church body as well, Lord. We just, just again, um, just put ourselves into your hands Again, asking for that anointing to receive your word. We love you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Amen. Thank you. We have come as far as um, chapter 4. I kind of left off around 14 of chapter 4. Uh, so I just want to back up just a bit there. Uh, in chapter 4, I mean verse 14, pardon me, 
again, going into another major section of the book of Hebrews, which is he's going to begin to deal with the priest, the high priest. Now, before we go any further, keep in mind that this is a struggling body of believers. And, and there's, you're going to see that there's actually two groups here. You, they thought it was one group, but as we study this, you're going to see that there's two groups. You're going to see a group that is totally, they've surrendered their lives over to the Messiah, struggling uh, with all the new ideologies, with all the new thoughts. This idea that this Christ is higher than angels, uh, he's, he's higher than the Joshua's, he's higher than the priest, he's higher than Moses. And that's something hard for these believers to wrap their minds around. You've got to remember something, folks. They do not have a New Testament. The only thing they're using, other than the teachings of the apostles, is the Old Testament. And so when, when someone, like the author of this book, be it could be Paul, and he starts challenging, you know... Um, I don't want to say the validity or the or um, just challenging this thought that you can't get any higher than the high priest, Aaron, speaking of Aaron. Uh, this is something that they're struggling with. They're struggling that there could be someone even mightier than Moses and mightier than Joshua, uh, mightier than the high priest. No New Testament um, carrying a lot of religious baggage around with them. Now, within this group, there's also a group who thought they were saved. They thought, now, they, they might have had an experience with a movement. They might have, you know, thought they were, you know, they understood this, this new covenant with God. They might even had an experience with the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God. But they were not, they weren't born again. So we're going to see two groups, though, even though they both, they all thought it was one. Again, he says in verse 14 of chapter 4, seeing then that we have a, high, a great high priest, that is passed into heaven, and of course he names it Jesus, the Son of God. And notice what he says. Let us hold fast to our, our profession. Again, what an exhortation. That word literally means to, to hold on to something without losing a grip. Almost as if your life depended upon it. Do you ever do that where, well, maybe you've never been in that kind of a circumstance. But, you know, where that you know if you let go of something, you could die I mean, that might be the extreme, but that's what the word means here. We need to hold fast to this profession because there were some in the group who wasn't. They, they weren't holding on, on to it, holding firmly. He says in verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And again, the idea is that whatever you face, or facing whatever struggles you're struggling with, Jesus can honestly say, yeah, I know, and I understand that. Now, he faced those temptations. Unlike us, he, he never sinned. He remained perfect. And well, he still, well, he was the Lamb of God. He said, since we, he, he was touched with our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And again, within this walk, we need both. We need God's grace and we need mercy. And where do we obtain that? We obtain it from our high priest. Now, again, 
He is going to be the high priest after a different order, not after the order of Aaron or after the order of the tribe of Levite or, you know, he's going to have a different order that he comes from. But he goes that and find grace to help in the time of need. When, it, when you, it's most needed, grace is always there to help us find, again, the idea is to find confidence. Now we go, keeping the same thought, going right into chapter 5. And remember, um, the chapter breaks and the, verse, the verses, that didn't come into around the 1200s and 1400s where they started coming up, formulating different chapters and verses and such. Like before, it was just one long scroll book, as it were, and very difficult to find a passage within it. Um, the addresses are there now for our convenience. So chapter 5 really starts back there at verse 14 is the idea. For every high priest taken from among men, now he's talking about the high priest um, uh, from the, the order of Aaron, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices. And that was the job of the high priest. You were not allowed just to go ahead into the holy place or, of course, the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there. You were limited. But yet the high priest, that was their access. That was sort of like the door for them to approach God with their sacrifices. Not just like the Passover sacrifices. Even if they wanted to do an offering of of consecration, which is an offering of dedication. Just say somewhere, you know, during the time of your walk, all of a sudden you just get this urge. You just want to be consecrated to God. You would go to um, to the sort of like the beginning of, of the temple area. You would present that offering uh, to a, the priest. And again, it would be taken from you. And then, you know, the rituals would be, begin. But you were not allowed to go over there and dissect the thing up and lay it out in order and to burn it on the, alt- the, burnt, uh, the altar of, um, of, of burnt offerings. You weren't allowed to do that. But... Um, Again, back in the biblical days, look at verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? He, he knew as a high priest how to be sympathetic, how to, to deal with... The, the word um, ignorant doesn't mean like a lack of knowledge. It, it, it's sort of... The word is best described as um, um, you would ignore it. The instructions on how to bring a, an offering of consecration, the wave offering and all that, the way God had made provision, they would ignore that. The high priest would be sensitive to that, and the idea is he would, he would understand, um, at least he should, I should say. Uh, in verse 3, he says, By reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins, he had to take care of his own sin first before he could ever deal with your issues in life. He had to always make a sacrifice for himself. Look at verse four, and no man taketh this honor to himself. He can't just decide he wants to be the the high priest. You see, the the only way you could even enter into the priesthood is if you were from the tribe of here. Here's a quite a test. What tribe? 
Levite, right? So somebody from the tribe of Benjamin, he couldn't decide, you know, I kind of like that gig. I'm going to try it out. You literally would have to be born in that particular tribe in order to serve anywhere within the temple area. Um, So no man takes this honor to himself is the idea there. He says, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So Aaron was called. This wasn't something that Aaron thought of. And listen, was, an, was Aaron the perfect high priest? Think about it. I mean, there's a, there's a part of history you've got to laugh about. The very first high priest, the brother of Moses, Aaron himself, right? Remember what happened when they ventured into, the, into this wilderness journey, right? Murmuring, complaining, we should have stayed in, you know, in, uh, in, in Egypt. And then we want gods to come along with us. Who's the one who crafted the, the golden calf? And he's not even a good liar. Moses comes down. He starts to come down. Joshua's halfway between this journey to come down. And Joshua thinks, oh, there's a war in the camp. And Moses looks at Josh and he goes, nah, buddy, this isn't isn't a battle going on. This is something even more serious. When they get down, they started seeing the idolatry around this calf. You know what Aaron has the gall to tell Moses? I don't know how this happened. They gave me some jewelry, I throw it into the pot, and now pop this calf. <laughs> you know, what a lame, lame excuse. That's your first time. Tell me there wasn't grace in the Old Testament. So he goes on and he says this. This is his point in verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made the high priest. No, what's he mean? You know, he, he, Christ didn't decide when he came in the, that earthly body that, hey, you know what? Along with being the Messiah, I might become the high priest as well. No, no. This is God's plan. God said that not only will you be a king, but you will be a priest. And no other, a Levite could not serve in a political position. He could only serve in the priesthood. So to have this high priest serving under the order of Melchizedek, can be both. He can be high priest, and he can be king, king and priest. One thing that I do want to point out to you, that um, they couldn't assume this honor. Now, as much as we would like to think that one can just decide to do something that's very honorable for the kingdom of God, I believe the ministry in which we're all involved in, we should all be involved in, we just can't assume that there's honor there. We ha- if we know that this calling and gift and, uh, and calling is of God, he will be honored. The problem is, is when people begin to assume that role. Where they're saying, you know, like, well, I think this thing of being a pastor teacher is a good thing. So I'm going to give it a a shot and I'll assume this role. Or, you know what, I'm going to become a a Sunday school teacher. And you assume that position. We need both, right? But I still believe that no matter what position you find yourself within the body of Christ, you need to know that you are called into it. You just can't assume that's going to bring him glory and honor. How many have we seen? We thought, what gifts and talents. This guy must be God's man of the hour. Years go by, and we find out, man, he, he has violated the pulpit. He has disqualified himself from the ministry. You kind of have to wonder, not to be judgmental, was he real, he or she, were they really called? 
Because my gut is telling me, when you know you are called, this gift and calling of God, there is such a fear in your heart that you won't dishonor that position. You won't dishonor your, your king and priest. That you walk this tight line. You know, you keep your... I was talking about last week. You come to that crossroad. You're not going to look to the left or right. You're going to stay on the straight and the narrow. Why? Because I just don't want to assume anything. Oh, but by the grace of God. Amen? And, I, and, that, and that's a heavy point. Christ didn't even assume it. This was totally something God had ordained. That he would be a king. He would be a priest under the order of Melchizedek. Look, it says, and that thought will continue as we keep going. Verse 6 says, and he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now look, you can go into the Old Testament. You won't find that much about Melchizedek. You really won't. And I don't want to go off because there's going to be almost three weeks of this Melchizedek thing in the high priest as we continue. So I'm not going to venture off too far in this idea. Who? Was he a Christophany? Was he a real person? Did this guy really exist? We're just going to stay within the context of what we have here. All we know is right now this author has presented Melchizedek who now serves as king and priest. And no Levi can do that. And no king can do that. Only one man could do that. And it's the man Christ Jesus who could serve both king and priest at the same time. And to be our priest we all should be saying amen. Because he is our priest whoever forever makes intercession for us. Amen guys? He's our priest. He's our king. He's our everything. Amen. Oh, that sounded like a song. I don't know. I'll write it down. Sometimes I surprise myself. What can I tell you? It says also in verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was walking during his earthly ministry here, notice this priest, our king, he says, When he had offered up prayer and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obeyed him, called to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What is he saying here? Listen, what he's saying here is he, he is not only king and priest, he also had an earthly body while he was here ministering. What's this thing about prayer and supplication, the crying? When did Jesus ever go through that? Well, listen, we don't have everything that Jesus said and performed. And according to John, if, we, if, if, if everything was written down, all the libraries of the world wouldn't be able to contain the volumes of books. But what we do know is the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? Where he is crying with great, great anguish. Guys, I have, you know, I've, heard, I've seen people cry out of anguish. I really have. I've heard those cries when, when that, that announcement is made. Sorry, we've done everything we possibly could do. And you hear that, that desperate heart cry. and bro- But I've never seen in, in all the years uh, of doing that, I've never seen anyone, anyone sweat blood. Not, not one person. Now, I'm not belittling anyone's um, emotions or anxiety or whatever they're going through. But, in, but what Jesus went through, 
with this whole thing of, of such, such extreme anxiety to where even the, the sweat glands, would, the, the blood vessels around the glands would burst and mingle with the sweat. You would look at him and you would think, this is an MMA fighter. He is just covered in blood. And yet all it was was his emotions. It was anguish. And I think with all my heart, he meant it. Lord, if there's any other way, he meant those words. He just didn't pin that out so we could have a nice song to sing. He, he meant those. If there was another way for him to bypass this part of separation, to bypass this idea of taking man's sin, you know, show me the way. But he would say, not my will be done, your will. You know, take this cup if it's possible. With prayers and supplication, after the order of Melchizedek, a king, a priest, fully human, understanding every emotion that you and I have ever experienced, you can never say to God, you don't understand. He does. Now, again, I think I said this last week, and stay with me for a second. I can't understand that. I honestly can't understand a couple things. More than a couple, but tonight anyway. You know, how he could be fully God who spoke the word into existence and still turn around and say, Harry, I know what it means to say you were tempted with lust. I know what it means, Harry, when you say you're tempted to take something that doesn't belong to you. I understand what it means to say something about another person and you should have kept your... I understand that temptation, but I didn't do it. And then and for me to think that this God understands this kind of emotion, fear and trembling, anxiety, and it's just, I can't understand that. I never will until I go home and see him face to face. As Corinthians tells us, then we will know all things as they're to be known. But right now, don't tell me you understand how Jesus felt. There's no way possibly in these finite minds that we would understand that. Amen, guys? I'm just glad he did it for me. I'm glad he said, but not my will be done. Your will be done. Boy, I'm going to heaven tonight. Well, I'm not dying on you, but you know what I mean. I, I, I could go home tonight. I just love him so much. The more I study about him, the more I fall deeper in love with him. And the more I, I think I'm able to bear up under difficult situations because of what he's done for me. Amen, guys? Don't bail out on him. No reason to. You hear these people who say they knew the Lord once and then they walked away because they just couldn't take it anymore. Well, again, I might be stepping on some thin ice here. I don't think you knew the Lord. Because if you knew the Lord, you would understand what he bared and you wouldn't bail out on him. You'd stay there. And you would do everything in a right way or in a right on this way. Amen. I'm not saying we won't fail. We won't be tempted. But the more you fall in love with... Oh, come on, Harry. Keep moving on. You understand what I'm saying. He... Even Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. That's what that means. So don't shy away from suffering. Don't, don't start to think you've done anything wrong. I mean, he will chastise the ones that he loves, yes. But there's a lot of times we suffer because God wants us to learn something. And yet we always make these prayers. Oh, I want to get out of this. Don't get out of it. Stay right there in the thick of things. And watch how he'll carry you and support you and teach you things as you are enduring times of trials and suffering. Stay in there, guys. Don't bail out. Amen? 
He says in verse 9 again, and being made perfect, that idea of being made perfect, bad translation in my old king, literally means this is what qualified him as a high priest. What really qualified him is because he was chosen. That he was able to learn something under, under affliction and, and bear, bearing up under. And again, verse 10 again, and I have to say this, you know, that God designated him. God chose him to be the high priest. Just like when we read in the book of Ephesians. Let me have your eyes for a second. Where he says, Paul the apostle would say to the church in Ephesus, that God gave some apostles and some prophets and evangelists, some pastors, teachers. You know, we see those titles, but we never see the beginning that God gave them, not man. And again, we just cannot assume a position. We can't assume that we're going to be honored. I know a lot of pastors, they, they never even reach 100 people in, the, in their church body. And, but they stick in there. They don't assume anything. All they know is they're called. And, and you know, again, I love uh, John Corson. I just love it. Well, years ago, when we were all young pups in the ministry, this goes all the way back in the 80s. I remember sitting at a round table with him and, and uh, one of the brothers saying, Oh, yeah, my, I, I, I've reached 10 in, our, 10 in our home fellowship. And he goes, well, you want to know something that's really mind-blowing, brother? He goes, if you have five, it's five more than you deserve. <laughs> you know how John Corson laughs? And I went, he's right. He's right. I think, George, we were still in Woodbury when I heard that, you know. I had this home fellowship on High Street in Woodbury, and there was about three or four of us. And uh, we just thought that was the next mega Calvary Chapel, man. We were good, man. But anyway, again, you'll see that after the order of Melchizedek. We'll be uh, taking that on as the weeks come. Um, but it says, whom, in verse 11, whom we have many things to say. He goes, I would like to say a lot more about this. Um, and hard to be uttered. Literally, it's, this is going to be difficult to explain. And in the same verse, he says, the reason is because you're dull. Not dull like you're boring, but, you know, you just don't seem to listen. And that's why a lot of scholars or commentaries will say... There were certain things that this church in Jerusalem was just ignoring. Man, they just could not wrap their heads around that something's better than Moses. There's something better than the high priest. So they would just pick and choose what they wanted to embrace. And he's saying, no, no, you're dull of hearing. You don't want to really hear and you want to ignore certain things. Well, let me tell you something, folks. The word of God starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation and we cannot pick and choose what we want to pick and choose. Now, I get it. There are some things that I read and I go, ow, wow, you know, or when I taste it, it's so sweet. And then later on, as I'm really thinking about it, I'm going, oh, man, this is bitter. This is something very hard to digest. Come on. We've all been there. Love your enemy. You know, when does he challenge you that? You know, when you're riding on 295 during, you know, what do they call that? Traffic jam. You know, you love your enemy, you know. I had a guy cut me off on my bike the other day, you know, and my flesh. And all I heard was, ah, oh, bless them that curse you. You know, they wave at you in a funny way, you know, and so I'm going by and I'm looking at the guy. Of course, I speed up. Now I'm breaking the law to be, you know, and I'm going, hey, God bless you, bro. You know, oh, but that's not what was in my heart. 
But listen, guys, we can't not just pick and choose what, you know, if the Holy Spirit begins to work on your heart in a certain area of your life, would you do me a favor? Yield to it, no matter how it stings. Remember, salt? Sometimes the Word of God is like dumping salt right in an open wound. But just take it. Don't bail out of it. He says, for when, or for when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you should have been teaching by now. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Man, you should have been moving on by now. And now you're still dealing with this. And again, could this be more like a question? How, how much longer? You know, when will you grow up? And he's going to use this picture with milk and meat babes and maturity remember the first challenge that he this author gave to the church there was uh, let us now enter into his rest that was challenge number one I, I forget now how many challenges they are there is part of me in the book of Hebrews but this challenge will be now let us go into maturity you know the first one let's let's enter into his rest let's enter into his promises where we'll get rest. Now he's going to challenge them. You know, by now you should have been mature. You should have been, you should be grown. And by the way, in the spiritual realm, in the, in, in the kingdom of God, we don't gauge maturity by the, the amount of years we've been saved. Because I've met some young Christians been saved for three years and you're like, my goodness, such a hunger and a zeal for God. And you think, what? And then I've met people who've been saved for 20 years and you're going, oh my goodness. My, you know, it's one thing to have a little baby and you want to change the, the child, right? But then to see a 14-year-old kid wearing a diaper, that's kind of weird, wouldn't you think? Right away, you don't even want to laugh at that. It's ugly. Well, what do you think God, God sees where you have this idea where you become a Christian and you begin to desire the sincere milk of the word and you're growing and you're growing. And next thing you know, you're teaching a Bible study. You're involved with prayer meetings and you're, you're calling the church. What can I do to serve? And then years, but, you, but there's some people who never grow. And that's a scary place to be. He goes to them in verse, uh, the latter part of verse 12, he says, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You're, you're still like babes, to, you know, still desiring the milk. For everyone that uses the milk is unskillful in the word. You know, that baby Christian will never be able to help anyone in the word of God. And, you know, I can always tell. It's, a, it's kind of a, a test for me anyway. Is I can always tell a, a sincere, mature believer... Uh, um, compared to one who is maybe immature, believe this one will use the word of God, and this one will always use a testimony or feelings. You know, well, I remember when I and they go off in the testimonies, and they never give the meat of the word. They'll never say, "Hey, let me take you to a passage in the scriptures." You know, it's always about a feeling, a sense, what they see with the physical eye. But the mature believer will say, you know what? That reminds me of a passage in the Bible. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs or let's see what David has to say in the Old Testament. You know, Paul alluded to this in the book of, you know, um, Ephesians or something like that. You get my point? So that's a challenge to all of us. Amen, guys? Study. Study to make yourself approved. Worker that needeth not to be ashamed. 
He goes on, for every one of us uses the milk, pardon me, verse 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are full of age. In other words, through Bible training and this maturity, um, it's almost like a skill. That's how you recognize someone uh, who is mature. And they know how to, to, um, to make a difference between those things that are right and those things that are wrong. Why is it so important? Why is it? God gave some um, pastors, uh, teachers. He gave some apostles, evangelists. Why did he do that? Again, God gave, you can't assume that role. It has to be a calling of God. Now, by the way, just so I, I clarify this and I don't leave anyone confused, we're all called to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And we're all called to, to um, exhort one another and to edify. I'm just talking about those that are called into public ministry. And if you look at that list, the evangelist, the prophet, the um, the pastor, teacher, that's a public ministry. You just can't assume that, that role. But why? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, I just want to read a few verses to you. You can try to, to turn there if, you want, if you'd like. But um, it says, for the pastor, teacher, and um, the evangelist and all, it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's three things mentioned there that it's for the work of the ministry. So I assume that these evangelists and these apostles and pastors, teachers, they're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So everyone is called to minister, to serve one another. Number two, it is also for the edifying or yeah, the edifying uh, of the body of Christ. We're all called to build one another up. Listen, listen. For guys especially, we love to demo things. Is that not true, men? Don't we love tearing stuff apart? I had the greatest job before I went full-time in the ministry. It was called, listen, get this, dismantlement consultants. You know what that job was like? It was like a bunch of grown men that just were allowed to tear anything apart. We had wrecking balls. We had every hammer you can imagine. We cut everything. And you know when it was a good day? When we made a lot of noise. You know, a lot of wrecking. The body of Christ is not called in the demolition business. Some Christians literally feel that, well, I did it, and I, but I did it in love. No, what you did is you just spiritually annihilated someone. And if you look behind you, you got a lot of carnage back there. And you haven't helped a person. You just got something off your chest or off your mind. And you're trying to now hide behind this mask, this this mask of hypocrisy, get real. No, God has called us into building one another. And some, sometimes it's a matter of just shutting up, not saying anything at all, and loving a person. We are not to put our finger on everybody's faults and on everybody's problems and then to be sin, sin sniffers. And try to sniff out everybody's sin. Now is there a time where God lays it on your heart. To go exhort a brother that might be caught up in something. Yes. But usually. No. Most every time. It's one on one. Matthew 18. You go to your brother how? Privately. You know and sometimes it's a matter or an issue to ask for forgiveness. 
and, um, and, but you move on. He goes on, it says, until we come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Not perfect as far as sinless, but mature man. Same thing that this author is dealing with. Unto the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we, um, part of our job, you know, keeping the unity, the knowledge of God's Son, until we reach this, this thing of maturity, um, and then measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And we have said this often, folks, that our goal should be more like, to be more like Christ. We want to love like he loved. We want to give like he gave. We want to come alongside of our enemies like he did when he was reviled. Did he revile back? When they slapped him on the face, did he slug them back? We want to become more and more like him. Then in Ephesians 4, he continues, Henceforth, and this is the same point that he's making here in Hebrews, he says, Henceforth will be no more like children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and write. You'll be mature enough to know the, the doctrine of heresy, or, or when someone is just outright lying to you. That's why the, 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 Christ, the young Christian... They sort of like get uh, um, deceived and drawn away. But the other, the other, the mature Christian, he's able to sit back using the word of God, kind of balancing things out. And then, find, you know what? This is totally wrong. This, and again, there's a lot of weird things within the body of Christ today. A lot of crazy things that are going on. And you know how it's being masked or covered up? Through their music. Music's beautiful. The music's great. It's got great, some of them great lyrics. And then you go behind the scenes and you find out what they're teaching and what they're practicing. You're going, I can't believe it. They were just singing that song. They're practicing this. See, the young believer, he won't catch on to that. But the older believer, the mature believer, and that's my job and that's Richie's job. We equip the, 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 um, the believer for the work of the ministry to be able to defend the gospel, to know what is right and what is wrong. Does any of this make sense? That is the job of the pastor teacher. That is the job of the elder. He goes on and he says this. I'm still in Ephesians. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and come back by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And again, what he's talking about is the maturity that makes up the body, every ligament fitting properly, every limb fitting properly. properly. Why? Because we're growing up the body of Christ. And again, foundation there being love. Uh, signs of maturity, just two I want to give to you tonight. There's a desire to grow. There's a, you just look, you, you talk to him, you're in, you're in fellowship with him, and in this person's heart, I just want to grow. When someone just says, you know what, I'm, I'm just well enough, you know, I don't want to grow and all that, man, that's a dangerous spot to be. I just want to grow. And then number two is the willingness to hear. Without those two things, what you're going to have is a Christian, if he is a Christian, just desiring the weak and the elementary things of God. Make sense? Hmm, chat, let's, let's keep moving. I think we can get some, some into chapter 6. Back to uh, Hebrews. 
chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principle of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. Not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. Now remember, these Hebrew believers, they're struggling. And this year they got this doctrine of, of Jesus being better than Moses, Jesus being better than the high priest, Jesus being better than Joshua, and so on and so on. Now they got in this year, though, this other group saying, no way. Jesus can't be better than Moses, can't be better than the law, can't be better than, um, than the high priest. He goes on. But so what he's saying here is not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works. And that makes sense now. What they're doing is saying, hey, let's get back into the law. Now, the reason why I'm trying to elaborate on this, let me have your attention. Because from verses four, to six, uh, verses four through six, we're going to be challenged with, with a theology, a doctrine that if you don't understand just this verse here, you're going to get tripped up or you're going to get mixed up with these other verses. Here's a group telling us, let's get back into the law. Let's start bringing our burnt offerings. Let's start bringing our Passover lamb. Let's start cutting up the animals and dissecting them and let them lay in a certain order. Let the Passover be our Passover lamb. The, the Judaism is superior to Christ, superior than the cross, superior. That's in the other ear. And that's why when, he's, when this author starts to talk about once being enlightened and once tasting something that was good, you have turned from that? Here's the question. What did they turn back to then? They turned back to the works of the law. And when you turn back to the works of the law, there is no salvation. None at all. So I just, I put that out there just kind of, you know, a little teaser there, but I'll, I'll get back back into it a little further. Verse 4 through 6. Notice what it says here. Verse 2. He says this. Of the doctrine of baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this, we, and this will we do if God permits. In other words, if God is going to let us go any further with this then we're going to understand this new doctrine on baptism, the laying on hands, the resurrection, and eternal judgment. You see, folks, let me have your attention here. They've already had these doctrines. But it was quite different. Their baptism was totally different than the baptism of Christ. Remember John the B? Johnny B? Johnny B. Good. You know, you remember him, right? His, his baptism was a baptism unto repentance, right? You do this, you'll be okay. But Jesus' baptism was a baptism unto regeneration, a new life, being born again. Two different ones. Again, this guy's preaching in this year a baptism of works, no repentance from. Because if you do, you turn around, what are you going to go back to? This repentance, you're turning back to Christ. The baptism that they were referring to usually meant a washing. They had all kinds of spiritual washings. They, they dig a hole anywhere and take a bath in it. They washed their hands in a certain way. Remember the, the criticism the disciples uh, received because they didn't eat their meal with washed hands? And they, they weren't talking about hygiene. There was a ceremony of washing your hands in a certain way. That was called a baptism because they were cleansing their hands in order to, to eat the food in a... In a, in a, in a um, uh, ceremonial fashion 
With laying on of hands. What do you think about in the Old Testament? Was there laying on of hands? Sure. Here comes the sacrifice. They laid their hands on it. Uh, symbolically, they're, they're transferring their sin onto, the, onto the, the animal. Sure there was. But is it that way in the New Testament? No. We lay hands on one another. Hopefully it will generate some faith. The laying on of hands would be totally different. This is a struggle to them. How about the resurrection of the dead? Sure they did. But where did they go after the resurrection? They went into Abraham's bosom. Is it different today? Of course it is. We don't go to Abraham's bosom. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So in this year, they're, they're going back to the old teaching of baptism and of laying on the hands and of resurrection. What about eternal judgment? They were clueless about eternal punishment. They had an idea that there was an eternal judgment But they didn't think of hell like you and I think of hell, where the worm never dieth, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, the abyss. They never heard words like that before. They knew knew there was going to be a judgment. So this group of people being taught one thing, and yet there's another group still calling themselves Christian, teaching an entirely different thing. But if you would go to the the church in Jerusalem, oh yeah, they're believers. Why? Because they sneezed and said, God bless you. See, there's something more to it than that. And so listen to verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted the good word of God, powers of the word, uh, the word to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified uh, to themselves the Son of God afresh and put to, put to an open shame. It's impossible. Look, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They tasted the word of God. If they, all of a sudden, it's impossible for them to repent. Now, see, this is why we have to slow down now. And this is important because this has, this, these verses here has placed more guilt and more condemnation on believers more than any verses in the entire Bible. Uh, You know, someone will take this, take it out of its context, preach a a sermon of condemnation, and a young Christian, because he doesn't know the the scriptures, he will all of a sudden, well, that's me. You know, I'm that guy. I, I, want, I was enlightened once. I, I tasted the, the heavenly gifts, or, you know, and I was a partaker of the Holy Ghost. Now, let me try to explain to you what's happening here. There's five participles here. You notice in verse 4, he said, For it is impossible. Notice, have tasted of heavenly gifts. They were made partakers, tasted what was good, right? And then if you look down in verse 16, and, and shall fall away. This is a group of people. How do I know it's a group of people? Look at verse 4 again. For those. And he's pointing to this group. If you go down a little further to verse 5 or 6. If they shall fall away. Latter part of verse 6. They crucify. He's looking at a group of people who was apparently involved with this group. Who has turned away from Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. They're saying no way. Again, and the key to understanding this is even if they repent. What's the word repent means? It means to turn around, turn away, right? What are they going to turn to? They've crucified the Lord afresh. They're going to go back to the old. Let me tell you something. You go back to the Old Testament and start 
sacrificing animals, guess what? There is no salvation for you because there's only salvation in one. It's in Christ. Now, look, I don't totally understand this. I don't. I, I honestly don't. The best that I can figure, there were those who, um, that were numbered with the rank, in the ranks of those who went back to Judaism. There was another group struggling with their identity in Christ, and they were struggling immensely, thus the reason for the book of Hebrews. And one group was going, we're going to go back. He goes, look, if you have been enlightened, doesn't mean they were saved. You, 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 you've tasted the heavenly gift. There are a lot of people who come in here and they'll sing and the hands go up. And you, and you look at, your life, at their life and you're going, wait a minute, something's not copacetic. Something's wrong here. They might have tasted something was good. Doesn't mean they're saved. What are the next one? Um, partakers of the Holy Ghost. Sure they could. They could say, you know what? I just felt so good when I went to church. You know how many times I hear that? You know, I feel so good when I come to church, huh? And I just went, but are you saved? Do you, are, you've been regenerated. Are you baptized in the, in, in, unto repentance? Or are you baptized into regeneration? Tell me. And they'll look, like you, look at you like you've got three heads. Well, I just feel good when I come to church. Well, no, that feeling good does not get you into the kingdom of God. You know, I would rather you be born again and feel lousy the rest of your life. At least I know when we get to heaven, we'll be all right. But this is because you feel good. Experience, you know, and again, I, I can't judge another man's servant. I don't know, but I see, I see these concerts with all these people just worshiping and, and they're singing and you think, and there's tears, there's real tears. There's genuine, they're tasting something good and sweet. And then you go a little deeper and you start digging into what they believe in and you start to scratch your head and you're going, that doesn't mean, that doesn't, something's wrong. Sing about the grace of God. And then all of a sudden in the back room, you're teaching them, but there's certain things you got to keep. It's, it's, it's so deceptive. Now, we are saved. We are born again because of what Christ... He is better than Moses. He is better than Aaron. He is better than the angel. He is better than anything you can, you can imagine. And that is our salvation. And when someone turns around and says, Yeah, but that's only the thing you sit on for you and I. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. But you know what I mean. They have... They've fallen away to renew them again unto repentance. What are they going to repent to? It's almost impossible for them to come back. Now, if they truly are saved, they will. If they're not saved and they're just going on emotions, they're going on a new movement. Do you ever hear? That, that's why today when I look around, I can hardly find anyone that got saved during the Jesus movement. Remember I talked about the church we started on Woodbury? I look around, I go, where are they? There was a dear girl in our church, in our school. She was part of the Jesus people. Her name was Lynn. And I found her on Facebook a couple years ago. When I brought up Christ and how, and how she ministered to me, even in my heathen days, um, her response, I honestly had to question whether she ever knew him. She's hostile. And now she doesn't even believe. She, doesn't, she thinks maybe Jesus was just a good man. But other than that, that was it. And I don't want you, you know, she, I guess, defriended me, whatever. I'm not on Facebook anymore, but um, she de- defriended me. I don't, not much of a friend if they can defriend you. I, I don't know why you people do this. But um, it's torture. Why did they defriend me? Why aren't they, why aren't they texting me anymore? Ah, geez, please get a grip. 
Um, but I'll tell you, um, I thought I was going to get a totally different response from her. I thought she was going to say, oh, Harry, you're walking with Christ. You're a pastor now. I am so blessed. I, I took up with all your night because I used to persecute her. I used to tease her. I used, there was one time I just slapped her books out of her hand. You know, I said, where's your Jesus now, Lynn? You know, and here she's so hostile. She literally can't. She said it. I can't stand Christians. That's see. Did she ever? She might have tasted something good. She might have partook in the in the Jesus people movement. But for her to be that hostile to Christ in the body of Christ, you've got to wonder: Were they ever saved? I believe with all my heart, and you're welcome to any theology you want to embrace. I really believe you. Once you're saved, you're always saved. The million dollar question, though. Are you saved? I could tell you when I got saved. I could tell you not just how my life changed, but how I changed inside. I know I'm born again, without a doubt. But I start to look at other people who say they are Christians and they're divorcing each other. They're still getting stoned. They're in fist fights. You know, that's judging. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, how do you, how do, you do that? How, anyway. I just, that's my take on that. And I, and I think verse 7 and 8 kind of supports the whole thing where he says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often upon it brings forth fruit or, or herbs, sorry. Meat for them by whom it is dressed. He's talking about the farmer. Receives blessings from it. In other words, if there's rain, who's going to be the one who profits from it? It's going to be the farmer. The rain comes, the fruit, the herbs, everything starts to grow. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is uh, nine unto cursing whose end is uh, to be burned. And again, it's a picture of condemnation, no, of judgment. You have one that's producing fruit and it's growing and the farmer's going to benefit. You got the other where it's just thorns and thistles and they never change. And he goes, that's going to deserve judgment. So there's a group over here in that church in Jerusalem. They're still trying to figure it out, you know. No, we believe Jesus is better than all of our ideology. But then there's this other group who wants to feel like they're saved. And wants to kind of be in this new movement. But yet they're embracing things of the old and they're not at all. And if they were to repent, the question is, where they, would they turn? They would just go back to Judaism again. There is no sacrifice for sin in an animal, but there's plenty in Christ. Make sense? All right. I'm not a scholar. It's just my opinion. That's Richie. You want to make your way out, buddy? Sorry, guys. I just wanted to make sure I got through that tonight. And you know that group, by the way, starting in verse nine, we're going to see the other group, the beloved, the believer. You know, it's going to start talking about the real, true Christian in Jer- in Jerusalem. Compared to those who aren't. Let's stand together. So if you know. You know because you know because you know. I'm saved man. What would happen if you would die today? (laughs) What would happen? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh man I'd be in the presence of God. But if you hesitate. If you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person, you keep some kind of religious law, I'd tap the brakes a little bit and examine the whole thing over again. I'd study the book of Romans. A man is not justified by his works. 
I would get into Galatians knowing that it's not our works that gets us into heaven. And it wasn't just the Jewish problem. Even the Gentile church was trying to do the same thing. You that begun in the spirit, now you're going to do it in the flesh? Craziness. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not. It is not of ourselves. We can't do it, folks. So if you're not born again, ask him to come in. Ask him to forgive you, but mean it. And just ask him. That's all it is. I'm not big on the altar call. I make an altar call, nobody comes up anyway. But if you're here tonight and you don't know him, I pray tonight you'll discover that. Let's sing together.